Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. I am now an Emergent Ventures Fellow, and I've received a very generous grant from the Mercator Center at George Mason University. And this is thanks to today's guest, Tyler Cohen, Director of the Mercator Center and Professor of Economics at George Mason. He is also the co-author, along with Alex Tabarak, of the Marginal Revolution blog, which I think I've been reading for almost every day for seven years. We had a whirlwind conversation about Caribbean culture, from music to food to art. We also discussed Caribbean economic history and the prospects of China in the Caribbean. And be sure to check the show notes. There's going to be many links to the topics we discussed all through the episode. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tyler Cohen. So if you're looking, Joe, if you're looking, Joe, go find someone to fool you. And if you're feeling hot, sister, if you're feeling hot, then I'm bound to fool you. Hi, Tyler, and welcome, and thanks for joining this conversation. Yes, very happy to be here. I enjoy what I've heard of your podcast, and、uh, delighted to have you as an Emerging Ventures winner. Ah,、oh, thank you, and I'm very happy to be chosen as well. And I'm going to just jump right into the first question. Do you think there's a a common thread that goes through the work of Sir Arthur Lewis, King Tubby, and Hector Hippolyte? I believe there is. So, in my general view, as an outsider, there's such a thing as a Caribbean cultural renaissance that happened basically after World War II. That you had this part of the world that was economically fair, really quite central in the 18th century, and often very wealthy, though in skewed ways and with plenty of slavery, of course. But as a as a share of the world economy, it was a big deal. Uh, that vanishes for or diminishes for a fairly long period of time, and then all of a sudden there is this new peaceful age where world trade is resuming. Cruise ships are being sent around. North American tourists start flying to the Caribbean in fairly large numbers, and there's a relative degree of peace. And slavery is at least more in the past than it had been earlier. And I think all of those conditions together, you have this incredible globalization, where Caribbean creators are selling to outside markets, or sometimes migrating, or borrowing ideas from outside, but still doing something very fundamentally Caribbean. And、uh, the sources you mentioned, among many, many others, you can think of as very broadly all belonging to that movement. From my point of view, that that blossoming in the Caribbean. It's a bit like ancient Athens, actually, but not usually thought of as such. The numbers of people are really not so enormously large, but if you think of what comes out of that time from a pretty small area,、uh, to me, it's quite remarkable. A few years ago, I was in Kiasma, the contemporary art museum in Helsinki, Finland, and there was this really fun exhibit with the culture of the Sami people. That's the Indigenous people in Finland and other、uh, Nordic countries, and it was conflated with 
Jamaican dancehall music and dancehall dance. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on what account for the uh, the persistence of popularity of Jamaican culture globally. I think Jamaican culture globally has been most successful in the arena of music, though Jamaican culture is notable more generally. And there's something about Jamaican music, arguably some West African musics and North American black music that is remarkably global and universal. And I'm not sure anyone has ever quite put their finger on what those features are. Uh, The kinds of melodies and rhythms seem catchy when presented to a lot of different musical cultures in many places. Uh, Jamaican English, it is English, which of course is the world's number one language, but it's not American English, so it's a way of partaking in English-speaking communities without just being, you know, USA. Uh, It communicates a sense of rebellion, a sense of relaxing, a sense of pulsating energy, dancehall in particular. And I think the world just stood up and realized Jamaican music is, is this miraculous thing. And it's inspired creators around the globe. It was an early source for rap music in the United States, a major influence on most African popular musics. Uh, many other places, there are groups you know, from Sweden, Western Europe, that have copied reggae influences in different ways. Paul Simon, Paul McCartney, both strongly influenced by reggae, did their own versions of reggae songs. Uh, dub itself is a seminal influence behind techno and the later development of electronic music. So it gets back to just how deeply influential and important these Caribbean cultural roots have been. In the USA, why do you think that Bob Marley is more popular than Lee Perry? I much prefer Lee Perry to Bob Marley. The music to me is more complex. Lee Perry is one of the greatest producers of all time but also his own songs. Uh, They're iconic. He worked with The Clash. He worked with Mad Professor. I saw Lee Perry in concert actually twice, two of the best concerts of my life. Uh, Deeply honored to be able to go. I was just entranced, uh, blown away. And both times Perry was at advanced ages and looked really pretty decrepit, but he got out on stage and completely delivered. But I think the complexity of musical language is the problem. He is a deconstructor of sound. It requires a lot of cultural background about what he is doing. The lyrics are very often not so intelligible. He is connected to the least accessible part of the clash. Whereas Bob Marley, you know, if you think of that, the John Lennon Beatles song, All You Need Is Love, right? Classic example, universal culturalization. The thing that Lennon and Beatles captured in that song is what Marley, in his own very different way, captured in his later music coming out of Jamaica. Iconic lyrics, super clear images, intelligible words, beautiful melody, just hits you, you know, straight in the gut. Everyone relates to it, uh, sort of simple but wonderful ideas. Now, early Marley is a very different story, uh, but that's why I think Marley has been by far the number one Jamaican creator you know, maybe for two decades was the most famous musician around the whole world, arguably, with the possible exception of the Beatles. Even there, I'm not sure. So uh, he had a lot of features that Lee Perry didn't. But uh, I don't really put on Bob Marley to listen to. I enjoy it, but you hear it randomly enough. Lee Perry, I still put on all the time. Uh, you know, I, I think that people are surprised when I say that 
I don't hear Bob Marley that much at home in the Caribbean. I hear Bob Marley way more when I'm in the Philippines or, or China. And I think I hear it more in the United States than I hear it in the Caribbean when I go. Uh, or Africa, you hear it quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, Camille Paglia, she said that Rihanna is virtually the only performer today that consistently intrigues and fascinates me. So what current Caribbean artist fascinates you? Well, current Caribbean artist, uh, I have a bunch of YouTube bookmarks to music from Haiti, whose names I don't always remember. Uh, I think music from Haiti is much underrated. It doesn't typically work, you know, on disc or on streaming. But when you hear it live, it's good. When you watch it on YouTube with a music video, it's quite good. So I've been enjoying that lately. I tend to think of Dancehall as having peaked in the 90s. I could be under-informed on that. But if you think of, you know, Shaba Ranks or even the, the poppier stuff like, you know, Luciano, sort of halfway pop Dancehall reggae. Uh, but that's really some time ago now. Uh, Buju Banton got out of prison not so long ago. I follow what he's up to. I don't know if he will create anything important again. Uh, but I would say I'm not aware right now what is the best creation in Jamaican music. I am waiting for someone to tell me. And anyone listening, I would urge you to email me. I will absolutely check it out. And that, of course, includes you, Rashid. Oh, yeah, uh, for, for, <laughs> for sure. Uh, but when you say Haitian music, are you referring to compa or some other genre? Uh, there's a lot of different forms of Haitian music, as you know. What I like seeing live the most is compa with Haitian dancing to it. So the kind of thing Sweet Mickey used to do before he got ruined by politics. But, you know, the old-style group Tropicana, which also had a lot of Cuban influences. But just Haitian ballads, often sung by women, I think are quite beautiful. Uh, those are well represented on YouTube. And uh, sort of vo voodoo music, like Richard Morris and Ram. I've seen them live like four or five times. Uh, and they put on a tremendous act. Uh, probably my favorite Haitian music, which I have not seen in its proper setting any time ever, but it's on my list of things to do. That's rah-rah music. You have to go near or before the time of carnival. There's only sort of a six-week period when you can see it at all. Uh, but I have a bunch of good discs of rah-rah music, and the discord and complexity and dissonance of that and, and rhythms and punctuations uh, – to me, that's a kind of highlight, and I strongly suspect it would be much better live with the whole visual, you know, element laid out at the same time. So I'm a fan of rah-rah music. Yeah, um, that's similar to what I think about steel band music because, you know, when I hear a steel band live, it's like magnitude's better than I hear it on a recording. It's, it's... Yeah, I don't think listening to steel band on a recording makes any sense at all. There's something about the timber of it that just isn't captured. The same is true with, you know, some parts of Chinese music, oddly. They just sound like noise or a cat screaming when you hear it recorded. But there are these very delicate, sensitive timbers when you're there that are remarkable. Even if you hear like a Chinese opera, if it's amplified, electrified, it somewhat ruins those timbers. And steel pan music's the same. Again, it's one of the few, like, truly original instruments in the post-World War II era to have caught on in a significant way. And it's remarkably versatile and beautiful, but just hard to consume unless you get there. You made a, a, a remark once in a, in a blog post where you said that 
Trinidad seems to be the last place where classical music is part of popular culture. Uh, do you have any idea why that could be the case? I've only been to Trinidad once, and I had the sense it was a very kind of classical and conservative society with a lot of family values, a lot of music making still at home, which oddly were features of the 18th century Germanic world, and sort of learning how to play the piano, playing at home, the family doing it together, and maybe that's helped preserve various classical traditions there. Just a speculation. I genuinely don't know. Hmm. And have you given up on Edward Cumberbatch? Well, I've emailed him a few times. Uh, the backstory here, he's a singer from Trinidad, and I went to hear him sing, I believe, in 1997. And he's quite obscure, though well-known in Trinidad. And he simply decided not to pursue a musical career. He He rejected the notion of fame. But he had one of the most incredible voices I've ever heard. I, I would say better than almost any professional opera singer I've heard. And I feel I've heard, you know, the very, very great ones. And he just gave a recital in a port of Spain for two hours and I was transfixed. And there's some of him on disc where he's pretty good. You can hear the talent, but it's typically in an opera or with an orchestra or a setting where he's somewhat drowned out. But just to get the pure version of Eddie Cumberpatch, like on disc, I would still be willing to fly down there, pay for the recording, do whatever would be needed to done, to be done to organize it. But I wrote him a few times, never heard back. I think he's not that interested. I don't know. To me, it's a puzzle. He's one of the world's great musical talents, and he turned his back on doing anything other than local performance, often for his church. And then these few strange compact discs, where again, he's quite good, but you're not getting the real talent. You just like hearing him as one voice in a chorus or something. If you check the list of top videos played on YouTube, Caribbean music is pretty predominant. You have obviously the explicit Caribbean songs like Despacito to Reggaeton, or you have... Bailando, again, reggaeton. But you also have Justin Bieber's Sorry. It's not called Dancehall, but it, it is Dancehall. Or you have uh, Ed Sheeran's song up there also. It's also Dancehall. Why do you think that Caribbean music is still so dominant, even in American culture today? Well, there's a direct conduit to American black life, at first through Harlem, but now more generally. But one of the wonderful things about the Caribbean is how many different cultures you have. I mean, even within Jamaica, but certainly across countries. So there are these kind of artificial laboratories for innovation. There aren't that many other profitable jobs in many of these places. So a lot of people are attracted to culture as a, or music or as a means of earning a living because you can earn a good living that way and you certainly have your choice of role models. So just having... The proper mix of isolation and integration with other traditions and then people borrowing from the major traditions like Trinidad, Jamaica, Cuba, Haiti. Uh, it's like this perfect laboratory for creativity and it does very well in other places. But I think also some of these universal elements. So English language, yes, but not USA is appealing. Uh, melodies ultimately somewhat rooted in pentatonic scales, I feel, makes sense to people steeped in other musical traditions more easily than, say, Bollywood film music or a lot of Asian popular song. Uh, a strong percussive element is more universal. 
than a lot of other global musical traditions. And there's just something like cool about it, kind of outsider. And uh, no one, I think, feels threatened by the Caribbean. So music from U.S., it's sort of always sort of fraught. Well, what's your opinion toward the U.S.? Uh, a lot of places, there's always someone else who's a little nervous about culturally, you know, what to make of music coming from Japan or China. But music from the Caribbean, uh, no one is threatened by that. And it's beautiful and open and complex. I wonder if you have any thoughts on this question. So when I'm in America and I speak to African-Americans my age, they perceive jazz as being very elite and frankly white. But of course, that's one of the deepest ironies we have in popular culture. So, and it, it seems to happen very uh, quickly. Why do you think that transition happened where jazz, known as you know, very strong black music, became now white elite music? Well, I think it happened slowly, but it's highly unfortunate. So right now in the United States, jazz is a kind of high art music. If you go to a jazz club in Manhattan, it's quite possible that half of the people there will be Asian tourists, often Japanese tourists. Nothing wrong with that. Good for them. It's tremendous music. Uh, but hip-hop has outcompeted jazz with younger black audiences, I would say since the early 1980s. So that's now almost 40 years of jazz fading. And jazz has become enshrined. It's supported by the federal government. We have jazz masters, most of the greatest Jazz creators by now have passed on. I think actual contemporary jazz is one of the most vital musical scenes. Just like go here, Matthew Ship or Bill Frizzell. You can like do it at will. The ticket hardly costs anything. Show up an hour early and you can sit in the second or third row. It's just this phenomenal set of opportunities, but no real commercial viability. Nerdy white guys like me, even most of us are not interested, but I am. And it's limping along, but look, the, the gain is there's no real temptation to sell out because there's no one to sell out to. But I think hip-hop has proven uh, it attracts way, way more listeners, whether it's blacks, whites, Latinos, whatever, reggaeton, just all of that's more popular. And, you know, we didn't even talk about Puerto Rico yet, but they've been very influential as well in, in recent times. You wrote a paper with Alex Tabarrok about avant-garde art and market pricing. So I wonder what non-pecuniary benefits do you suppose drive someone like Jose Bedia? Well, if you're well-known as a creator, there's high social status. You have opportunities to travel. The act of creation, however frustrating it may be, it's enthralling and fun. Uh, if your goal is to attract partners... Uh, it's a very good way to do that. There's something about being a creator, music, visual arts, whatever, that attracts other people romantically, sexually. I think that's a big part of the draw for many creators. Uh, you look at like early Paul McCartney, the number of women he slept with is off the charts. And for him, that was an incentive. So especially in societies where opportunities can be limited, if you have musical talent, once you manage to record it all, the people who might buy you in larger numbers, they're not asking about your family background or your class standing. You know, they like it or they don't. If you're Desmond Decker, Israelites comes out, it's a huge hit in the UK, in the US, in what, 68, 69? None of those listeners sort of care about the background of Desmond Decker. 
in a prejudicial way. They're either open to black music or they're not. And if they are, it sounds incredible. Uh, there seems to me in the Caribbean avant-garde art to be this macro theme of religion. I don't mean the European version of that. I mean the Americas. So you have the Palomonte in Cuba. You have Vodun in Haiti. You have Peruvian shamanism. You have the Lakota mystics. Uh, so I wonder if you've also picked up on this hmm, macro theme of religion in Caribbean avant-garde art. Uh, from my personal tastes, the Caribbean creations I like the best tend not to be avant-garde. They tend to be fairly accessible, drawing from popular cultures, drawing from religious inspirations. And one of the neat features of the Caribbean is just how intensely you have so many different religions in that space. It's going to depend on the country, but you'll have offshoots of earlier West African religions, typically. Sometimes voodoo religions or offshoots of Yoruba religions. You'll have different forms of Christianity, Catholicism, or Pentecostal, or uh, influence of gospel through various kinds of churches. You now, much more recently, have, you know, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, other influences, more recent than a lot of these creations, but still now part of the mix. And just the, the notion you know, from religious ideas of what is at stake, how much matters that Caribbean culture is so historically informed and, and rooted in the history of black migration, slavery, colonialism, but also globalization and joy and family and self-realization and tragedy, all that at the same time. I mean, what other part of the world can match that, like sort of cooked up in these super intense, semi-isolated laboratories of creativity? And what about Caribbean literature? How does that pull your interests? Well, I mean, an interesting question would be, like, what does one think of Derek Walcott, who rewrote sort of Greek classics and draws on themes of Homer? Uh, I think it's pretty good. I like it. I enjoy it. It's not the work from the Caribbean I get ecstatic over. It feels a bit to me a bit artificially done for the West or even done for literary critics, but I do think it's genuinely good and talented. Uh, but of the different cultures from the Caribbean, it, it's not the literary that draws me in the most. It's music and the visual arts. And I suspect that stems from history and the, you know, highly mixed history of education and literacy in many of these countries. Now, Cuba is a different example because rates of literacy in Cuba, even before Castro, have been relatively high compared to a lot of the Caribbean. So I think there you have a mix. Uh, you know, Charpentier is a really great author, and his, he's Cuban. His best novel, written in Spanish, is about Haiti. Uh, but that, to me, is unusual. But that would be like, you know, the Caribbean masterwork in terms of a novel. Hmm. Uh, what do you think about V.S. Nepal? Well, that, that's a complex question. I love his book, Servidia, about, well, rather, Paul Thoreau's book, Servidia, about Naipaul. So the best Naipaul is about him, not by him. I think he was a bastard. I think he was brilliant. Uh, House for Mr. Biswas is a grand novel of like a family in a Budenbrooks kind of fashion, but of course set in the Caribbean. Uh, I then think he gets worse and worse. 
and he writes books, you know, about Islam, about the American South, which maybe are entertaining, but they're ultimately a kind of intolerant, and he becomes closed, and you see more that he's a bastard, and that's what Thoreau captured in Servidia. So I think he's an immense talent who wrote many important books. Only one of them is really great and likable. And then he's in some ways a case study of decline, but brilliant decline, where there's still substance, but there's something in it that I find unlikable and intolerant. So on to suicide. The Caribbean has both the world's highest and lowest suicide rate. So Guyana has a rate of 30.2 per 100k, and Barbados has the lowest rate of 0.4 per 100k. Do you have any idea why the Caribbean has both the highest and the lowest suicide rate on Earth? I'm not informed on this matter at all, but I would make the general point that when you have many small countries as a general property of small systems, you're likely to have a lot of variance across a variety of different metrics. Uh, That might be a reason. It's not really a causal reason. It's just a sort of property of these kinds of statistical systems. Uh, Barbados is pretty well governed. Uh, I'm not sure that lowers suicide rates. It's not maybe what you see in Hungary or Finland. Or Finland has been well governed. Uh, so I don't think we understand very well what causes suicide rates to be high or low anywhere. So I wouldn't have any kind of particular explanation for parts of the Caribbean. Why do you think that Jamaica ranks number one in the world for Olympic medals per capita? I've never looked at the data. My offhand impression is they get a lot of this from track and field events. Uh, And I know there's people who have different hypotheses about somehow Jamaicans being better intrinsically at these events. Uh, Again, it's not something I've ever studied, but there seem to be a lot of places with West African backgrounds that don't do nearly as well. So I tend to think it's regimens of training and role models, and cultural commitment, uh, and that it's a self-perpetuating tendency, is my sense. But again, I, I, I would want to look at the numbers at exactly where they've won all the medals, and like compare it to other countries. So people who were slaves in Jamaica, their ancestors, what parts of West Africa did they come from? Those individuals. Uh, but I think, you know, you find these Examples of excellence tend to be cultural, not genetic. What's your take on the suicide rate in Barbados, by the way? You live in Barbados. You look pretty happy. <laughs> ah, well, hmm. Perhaps Barbados has a more stable social family structure. Perhaps people in Barbados are just less ambitious, so they have less stress. Maybe... Barbados has a healthier approach to shame and embarrassment than Guyana, for example. It could be that because of the homogenous aspect of the ethnic makeup of Barbados is, you know, pretty much one way, coupled with the very strong conservative religious, Protestant religious aspects of the country. Maybe all those things could have some confluence to have low suicide rates. I think that the bottom five are the the five countries with the least suicide. I think they're all in the Caribbean. So, you know, it really is one of those things that is understudied. Maybe the answer is, well, 
want lower suicide rates, live next to a beach, have salty air. I, 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 I don't know. And what do you think is the greatest Caribbean novel? I mean, most people would say House for Mr. Biswas. Hmm. Or I think Carpentier from Cuba. I'd have to say uh, Nepal's House for Mr. Biswas as well. But it's so with some reluctance because when I first read that book, I was already propagandized with the anti-Nepal sentiment. So I didn't really, you know, want to like it. But then you read it and it's like, ah, that's why you have to love it. It's just fantastic. Yeah, that's a natural pick. And in music, what's the greatest creation from the Caribbean? For me, I think it would be Jamaican dub. Lee Perry, the complex production, King Tubby. A lot of different dub artists or people who dabbled in it, Burning Spear, that whole direction. You know, there, there's something about dub that I, I put it in the same class of, you know, 20th century art as something like Schoenberg or Stockhausen or Andrea Sen or Steve Reich, where the that deconstruction of music is the real innovation. And I, I, I do wonder, you know, someday maybe go to a high art concert in you know, in America or England or Nordic countries, and you have a set where you have, you know, uh, Lee Perry or Gregory Isaacs and some Stockhausen or some Philip Glass or some Andrea Sen, because it really should be in that te- uh, category. I find I never get sick of listening to dub. I can take a good dub CD and listen to it over the course of 20 years or more, and I always hear new things in it. But also, Jamaican sort of popular music, the bridge between ska and reggae, the intermediate works, which would maybe be like 1963 to 1972, Desmond Decker being a clear example. I think that's another peak, just the general popular songs that were produced. Often you have wonderful songs by artists who would then just disappear, and, you know, they're on collections. It's not always by famous people. But that, to me, is a remarkable period. One of the sad things is that even now in the Caribbean, you don't really hear that kind of dub anymore. I mean, you will hear, for example, some Beanie Man or Buju Banton, but the, you know, the peak complex music of, you know, late Lee Perry or mid Lee Perry and so on, you don't hear it anymore. And it's, you know, it's even in clubs or in bars and so on. So, you know, that's some, that's, that's not as good as it, as it could be. Early Beanie Man, I think, is phenomenal. The really hardcore dance hall, uh, just rhythms bouncing off each other where he's not trying to make it accessible, and you're like, what are these words even? Is that English? And you can't even tell, is it Jamaica Patois? Is it English? Is it something in between? Like, who knows? Who cares? Do you understand what he's saying? I I do. (laughs) (laughs) Is it interesting? Is it, like, hostile? Does he get cancelled? Ah, cancel. You know... I don't think there's a cancel culture in any Caribbean because I guess one of the because that one of the glorious things about Caribbean culture is the bare metal vulgarity of it. You can say what you want, when you want it, how you want it, and you don't get cancelled. I mean, people are going to be upset, but that's that's what it is. So when I see that these cancel cultures in in the U.S. or London and so on, I can't help but think it's very weak cultural trait. That, that there is. So that's one reason why it kind of hard for me to wrap my head around as a culture in, in the US. But, you know, I, I can't say that the songs are, the lyrics are just <laughs> very vulgar. 
yeah, that was my suspicion, but I never have known. So at this point, I'll like to do a round of overrated and underrated. Okay, sure. John Cage 433. I think it's properly rated. So it's a work of silence, as you know. It's become so famous, it's cited so often. I don't think you can call it underrated. But like the best of Duchamp, it was a startling statement. And it raises the question, what is music anyway? And a lot of Caribbean music, including rah-rah music and parts of they raise that question in their own ways. And Cage was path-breaking, even for a lot of popular music. So maybe it's still a little underrated, but mostly properly rated. Historical performance practice, uh, HPP, uh, Plato Bach. I started off a long time ago being very skeptical of historical performance practice as applied to Bach or other Baroque music. Like I had Mergens Woldeke or Otto Klemperer doing St. Matthew's Passion, and it was big and grand and romantic, and I'd listen to that, I'd listen to Beethoven. It all fit together. And then these kind of wimpy recordings came along where the pitches are off, the voices are weird, there aren't enough voices, the conductors do everything too fast. But I'll tell you, you know, after decades, I keep on listening to both. And the historical performance practices actually got a lot better. I think many of the early ones, you know, by Horn and Court and the like, they're not actually that good. But you listen, you know, more recently to Haraway or John Elliott Gardner. I think it's better than the earlier romantic approach. So I've been converted for choral works. But if it's like Bach keyboard work, I still by far prefer it on the piano to the harpsichord. I don't feel the harpsichord records very well. You could argue it works better in live performance. But 99% of my consumption of Bach keyboard is at home. And Glenn Gould and Angela Hewitt, for me, it really works on the piano. And the harpsichord just... It sounds muddled to me. I think it's wrong. Uh, I think I became a HPP convert after I read Music in the Castle of Heaven by Gardiner. I love that book, yes. Now, you like Finnish classical music, correct? That's right. What appeals to you the most in that tradition? Uh, hmm, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever thought about that. Mm. Uh, I, I think the best I can do is say I have a a, a better cultural awareness of Finland and Finnish culture. So I have a close friend who is from Finland. He's also quite into classical music. So I, I guess I, I, I know of the Kalevala, the you know, the underlying myth, um, cultural myth of Finland. I kind of understand the political history, the tug of war between Finland and Russia, and then all of the the sentiments that that brought up. I have an, a general awareness of the religious movements in Finland, even something like Listhadianism. So I guess when I approach something like Sibelius, for example, I come to it with a, a more layered understanding of the culture which he's writing in, which, you know, and these people, they really build the culture into music. Is this um, saying in Finland, Finland is based on sauna, sisu, and Sibelius. So I, I guess that could be it. What's your favorite Sibelius, then? The Violin Concerto. You know, I think I would say the same. And I heard it live about two years ago for the first time. I had heard it on disc for a decade. Blew me away. Just fantastic. But symphonies four through seven and the tone poems I also love. 
I don't like all of Sibelius. Like the piano music to me is a bore. Uh, there's some hit, hit or miss in him. But those last four symphonies, uh, again, I can just keep on listening to them every time I hear things that are new. There are so many wonderful yet different recordings of them, like Colin Davis or Vanska. Okay, the next one is the Amor Amor. That object from space. Well, was it sent out as some kind of alien probe, as Avi Loeb from Harvard has claimed? I've read the different sides in the debate. I read some critiques of Loeb that struck me as maybe too grumpy and not taking him seriously enough. I would give it 1% to 5% that it's an alien probe, which for me is pretty high and worth taking seriously. Probably it's just some kind of natural phenomenon that we don't understand, and so it's puzzling, so that it's so elongated and thin and that it maybe seems to move like a sail or something. I, I get his argument. I'm not sure I can evaluate it, but I don't feel he's been crushed by any of his critics, and I've read a few of them, so it has a small chance. Let's keep on at it. Let's keep on looking. Okay. And Deirdre McCloskey's Bourgeois Virtues. Well, there's Deirdre's writings on bourgeois virtues, and there's Deirdre's bourgeois virtues. <laughs> Those are two different questions. Her writings on bourgeois virtues. Uh, Deirdre is super well-informed and has one of the deepest integrated knowledges of economics, British history, and the history of ideas in the Western world. And that is really impressive. And that comes through in her writings. That said, my own interpretation of the Industrial Revolution puts a heavier role on coal, British coal, than Deirdre would agree with. And military factors and state building rather than just ideas of liberty and bourgeois virtue. So I disagree somewhat. I, I buy most of the importance of what she's saying. I would say to the world as a whole, Deirdre is still definitely highly underrated. Mon cuisine in French Guyana. I've never been to French Guyana, so that means it has to be underrated, right? Because it's not famous enough to have drawn me. But, you know, pre-COVID, it was on my list Guyana's Suriname to get there as a priority, and I still want to do it pretty soon. I don't know when it will be possible. In general, I think food in Latin America is the most underrated food in the world. Can't speak to French Guyana, but French colonies typically have superb food. Uh, in the Caribbean, it's sort of a, a bimodal distribution. There's a lot of places where the food is just boring. There's like, it's good seafood or it's great jerk chicken, but not that much variety, and a lot of the dishes aren't that good. Or you have Haiti, which I think has phenomenal food. Trinidad has some good food. A lot of the places you don't really look forward to eating there. Jamaica can have excellent food, but a lot of what's there for tourists isn't very good, so it's hit or miss. What's your favorite Haitian dish? Oh, there's that rice they cook in the juice of the mushroom is great. I love how Haitians do Haitian turkey. It's a revelation if you've only had USA turkey to eat the, those small turkeys in Haiti. Dinde, I think they call them. And those Creole sauces, unbelievable. It's like you've never experienced turkey. Plantains there I love. All their forms of rice and beans. Uh, all their goat dishes. Their fried pork. Uh and then just the French restaurants there are phenomenal, sort of mix of French, mix of Caribbean. Each chef kind of creating their own dishes. You don't even know necessarily what to call them. 
but to eat in Port-au-Prince, I mean, you could just keep on doing that, never get bored. Uh, to me, amazing and highly underrated because everyone's been terrified to go there. Getting an MBA. Getting an MBA. Well, that depends who you are. I think if you get an MBA from something like the top 20, 25 schools, the networking and certification value is very high in North America. If you're getting an MBA from a lesser tiered school, it seems to me for a lot of people, it is now a mistake. You have other better ways to certify yourself. You don't either don't learn that much or a lot of what you learn, you actually have to unlearn. It's a fair amount of mumbo jumbo and PowerPoint kinds of thinking. Uh, other countries, it's going to vary. So uh, like if you get a really good French MBA, I have the sense from a great distance that can be pretty valuable, but I'm not sure I'm in a position to judge it. So, uh, but it's overall declining in import. And the tech sector, which is a huge engine of growth, I mean, doesn't value MBAs much for the most part. Titus Andronicus. The Shakespeare play, or you mean the movie produced by Stephen Bannon. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, the, the play. To me, it's unintelligible. I've tried reading it three times. I mean, I've looked at every page. I've looked at every word. I don't feel like I've read it properly. It's not my favorite Shakespeare. I feel the fault is mine, not Shakespeare's. So that makes me, like as a reader, overrated and Titus Andronicus underrated. But maybe it is just nonsense. I don't know. It's sort of violent and herky-jerky to me, and I don't enjoy it. Blame it on me or him. I don't know yet. What do you think? Uh, I actually like it. I don't think it could be mined for themes like The Tempest, but I saw I saw a production of it from uh, Seoul uh, Theatre Company in South Korea, and it, it was fun to watch. What you see is what you get. It was very bashful, somewhat vulgar, but it, it was fun. <laughs> and it could be it doesn't work on the page. I've never seen it. Most of Shakespeare works wonderfully on the printed page. But a work can be great in the theater without working on the page. That's mm -hmm. another possibility, right? Yeah. And you, you yourself referenced the version of it you saw, not that you read it. Yeah, that, that's true. So that was the last one, and I'm going to go back to the, the longer questions now. Perhaps my favorite public policy essay was written by Juno Diaz about the 2010 Haitian earthquake and the aftermath. He, he argued that there's no such thing as a natural disaster. There are only social disasters caused by the lack of infrastructure. It's obviously a very important theme, probably the most important theme for the Caribbean, but uh, Thomas Schelling, in the latter part of his life, also argued for these the need for this massive, massive infrastructure, much bigger than most people even consider in the U.S., of course. So I guess I wonder, why do you suppose the U.S. stopped funding infrastructure overseas? And then secondarily, why has the U.S. also slowed down upon improving and building new infrastructure? Well, the Caribbean has become systematically less important to the United States. In my view, that's a big mistake. I'll get back to that. But if you think about American tourism, the Caribbean has been in decline. Cancun and other parts of Mexico have drawn away people relative to the Caribbean. In terms of national security, the fear of needing to keep Europe out of the Caribbean is long gone, but it was a major motive for our involvement. And then we had imperialist motives. So for taking over Puerto Rico... That was to take a prize from the Spanish and also help the American Navy. 
I mean, that's just not important anymore in military terms. So we took over Haiti from 1915 to 1934. I don't know that we had any good reason for doing that. It was mostly a disaster. We did build the main Haitian road running up and down the island, uh, probably just so American troops could get around more easily. But as those motives fade, America is naturally a large, inward-looking, selfish country, and we just haven't done much for the Caribbean. And, you know, it's possible now. I know you work on the influence of China in the Caribbean, but China wanting to be more active in the Caribbean maybe, I hope, will encourage more U.S. interest, just if only for reasons of rivalry, just as the Soviet Union being involved in Cuba got the U.S. at that point in time more interested in the Caribbean, again, for selfish reasons. But to be interested in do good things for selfish reasons, I'm fine with that. And I hope we see a new era of that. But lack of U.S. interest is the default. And as an imperialist prize, the Caribbean is no longer worth much to my country. What do you think? Ah, well, as the saying goes, the Caribbean is too democratic and not poor enough for U.S. attention. So I think that uh, in the calculus of U.S. security interests, the Caribbean is very low risk. I think that one of the good, if you want to say that, aspects of increased China engagement in the Caribbean is that it would force the U.S. to also re-engage in the Caribbean as well. Of course, that has its trade-offs, but I think on net, if it managed properly, it could be a boon for Caribbean economies. And again, you should comment on this too, but I view most Caribbean societies as highly conservative in the literal sense of that term, not the U.S. political sense. So they're not that threatened by being taken over by outside forces. And in this regard, Cuba has long been a puzzle to me because Cuba did truly go Marxist and communist in some way and has stayed as such even well after the death of Fidel Castro and, you know, the, the system failed and Soviet Union doesn't subsidize them anymore, but it's still largely a planned economy. So why is Cuba such an outlier in the Caribbean in terms of its political science, and where does that come from? I guess that's one of my questions for you, because I don't know. I've been to Cuba. Uh, I think if you run the counterfactual of the Caribbean from the 1970s, it could have gone a different way. So in some sense, the reality now in the Caribbean is, you know, some, some way a fluke, perhaps. You know, some way. So there are two points to pivot. It's Guyana and Grenada. So in Guyana in 1970s, the president at the time, Forrest Bernhard, was a huge supporter of Kim Il-sung in North Korea. To the point where he would send Guyanese there, he went himself many times to do mass games. A lot of North Koreans would come to Guyana to do trade and aid, uh, as was, and there was an embassy, for example. And he was a believer in the Juche ideology and wanted to implement that in Guyana. So he changed the name to, I believe the full name is the Cooperative Republic of Guyana. And, you know, but he died abruptly in a hospital because it was a heart problem. That could have easily gone another way as well. And then you have now the New Jewel movement in Grenada that was led by Maurice Bishop. It was a Marxist-Leninist uh, party that overthrew the government of Grenada and became government. And it was a huge, actual, let's say the population supported it quite a lot. But then there was some infighting in the New Jewel People's Revolutionary Party. 
and Maurice Bishop, who was the leader of the party at the time, and some of his senior members of party, they were executed by some other members of the party. And then after that happened, the gov- the general of the army took over the government and became the chairman of Grenada. And the population was not fan of that. And that's when the U.S. invaded, you know, took that power and then restored elections, pretty much. But yeah, you know, these things could have gone a different way. So the re- current reality of the Caribbean, I think, is a lot less deterministic than it appears to be. So other Caribbean countries, if these two and then plus Cuba had stabilized, that was, you know, already started forming some block in the Caribbean of Marxist Leninist um, governments. And others could have followed as well. It is an easy path towards that. And, of course, the intellectuals at the time, they pretty much supported socialism, Marxism, that was, you know, in the academic air, as it were. Putting aside, like, some of the very small financial centers, like Grand Cayman, where in the Caribbean are you most optimistic about, economically speaking? I'm not. I'm not optimistic at all, but any kind Least of pessimistic. <laughs> Least How about pessimistic. that? Okay, sure. <laughs> hmm... Probably Barbados. Barbados. And what about Jamaica? I mean, they've... I think that Jamaica has these structural problems that aren't addressed, and they were not addressed for decades, and they're just getting worse and worse. Unless you can actually fix those, I don't see a way to be optimistic about the country. So the garrison politics, these are the districts controlled by drug lords in, in Jamaica, you know, Paul Romer had a, a good essay about this years ago where he suggested the Jamaican government should allow the diaspora Jamaicans to vote for elections in these districts that are very much uh, drug lord controlled. This would enable the elections to be a lot more fair because the voters cannot be intimidated by the drug lords. I think that was pretty cool, but, you know, that's a bit too radical for Love Caribbean uh, uh, Caribbean uh, choices and the other issue is the currency and monetary policy so the Central Bank of Jamaica the Bank of Jamaica has a record of failure of fixing this unless they dollarize so Caribbean economists like Dr. Worrell um, American economists like Stephen Hanking have been suggesting for decades Jamaica has dollarized like El Salvador, like Ecuador like kind of like Panama like Cambodia, and that would help a lot. But again, if these underlying things aren't fixed, I don't know how you could be optimistic about Jamaica's prospects. Trinidad, it seems to me, has a reasonable education system for many of the citizens. Maybe I would bet on Trinidad. I, I fully get the, the recent troubles and drug trade and over-reliance on fossil fuels, but uh, I think I would say Trinidad. It just has a bit more scale than Barbados. I think per capita, Barbados is a clear winner looking forward. But in terms of dynamism, Trinidad, no? What do you say? So I think that's going to be a no for me again. Because Trinidad also has these structural, institutional problems, you know, like Jamaica. So in Trinidad, there's a very big problem with the drug trafficking. You could call it a narco state by some metrics. There is a very high crime rate. Actually, I forgot to mention, I think Jamaica has the number three highest murder rate in the world 
if I'm correct on that. And Trinidad is also in the top 15, at least. And then you have a debt problem. You have a monetary problem. They have, the, you know, and that's been going on for a long time, since the 90s. You know, it's getting, be getting worse over, over the years. But yeah, and, you know, they refused to dollarize. And then you have oil. But the oil was not really properly productive, so you can say it has a Dutch disease issue. And then I think the most damning part is when you speak to young, high uh, human capital trainees, their biggest uh, talking point is, how do I leave? How do I immigrate from Trinidad? So when you have those dynamics going on, I'm not sure how you could, again, be optimistic. But there is then the whole Venezuela concern. So by some estimates, the Venezuelan population is now maybe 5% of the Trinidad population because you know they're all fleeing the chaos in Venezuela. That might go either way. That might go a good way, as in it adds in more vigor to the economy, or it could go a bad way, as in it causes more ethnic tension, which, you know, will have uh, negative externalities. So it's, it's a way to see. But I suppose I wouldn't bet my last dollar on Trinidad. What do you think is the future of Chinese immigration to the Caribbean? So um, there's plenty of Chinese in Trinidad. In the history of Jamaican music, Leslie Kong is a major figure, right? There's other Chinese entrepreneurs, not typically singers or songwriters, but figures who, you know, who owned or created record companies or produced music. Uh, what will that look like going forward? Will that just dwindle or does it have a, you know, a second or third run to go? Oh, there's no dwindling. I think this could be considered, at least the last decade, could be considered the very first decade of China and Caribbean engagement, you know, in a tangible way. So on policy, China released the first policy paper on the Caribbean Latin America in 2008. It did a second one in 2016. And before 08, there was pretty much no policy on the Americas besides, you know, uh, the US and Canada. And they started the Caribbean Latin America China Forum, you know, high level ministerial forums and so on. China even joined the Caribbean Development Bank as a non borrowing donation member. The large Car- large Chinese construction companies are based in the Caribbean. Uh, China Harbor is based in Jamaica as the headquarters. They build many, many projects all throughout um, the Caribbean. Every large Chinese, large Chinese tech firm is based in the Cayman Islands or BVI that goes into North America. So I was not trying to be hyperbolic when I said this is, you know, decade number one when it comes to China Caribbean engagement. And so the, the narrative regarding um, the Caribbean, uh, mostly in the European eyes or the American eyes, has to evolve because now China is a Caribbean player. So that's why I started a podcast in the first place. There's so much new things to look at and think about when it comes to Chinese engagement in the Caribbean, and it's only now getting more and more active. And how about a new wave of Lebanese migration to the Caribbean and other parts of the New World? Clearly, Lebanon has its problems. I have not seen a non-trivial increase in Lebanese migration into the Caribbean recently. Uh, however, of course, I think the Caribbean governments should encourage it. Uh, the Caribbean is very much welcome of new immigrants. The countries are pretty much empty. The fertility rates are very low. And the immigration has to go up. Definitional question. 
if you take eastern Honduras, eastern Panama, eastern Costa Rica, for you, is that the Caribbean? Puerto Limon in Costa Rica. I would say it is. It feels to me just like the Caribbean. But uh, For me, yes, it would count. But I've asked the same question to a lot of people in the Caribbean or different islands, and pretty much everyone says no. They don't consider that part of the Caribbean. Now, let me put the question in a different way. Take a part of Mexico facing toward the Caribbean, such as Veracruz, which historically had close Caribbean ties. But if you go to it today, no one would say it's the Caribbean. It's simply Mexico. It's been Latinized. Is it possible a lot of what we now think of as the Caribbean actually will be overwhelmed by migration from Latin America? You mentioned Venezuelans going to Trinidad. But if you just look at the weight of the numbers, could you imagine... A hundred years from now, the Caribbean proper is smaller and there's more Latin American Spanish spoken. Hmm. Yeah, I think a hundred years from now, it could be the case that the Caribbean would be just a Latin America light or an extension of Central America. It, it, it kind of seems to me this is a similar question you asked to Edwi Stantica when on your podcast where you mentioned that Haitian culture is technically Haitian diaspora culture, you know, in some cases. I think that would be the case for the Caribbean as well, where, let's say, prime Caribbean culture is from the geography of North and North America or Western Europe, where the, the geography of the Caribbean proper is Latino or Latin American. So I'm not exactly sure I would say it's my modal prediction, but there's definitely some fat tail risk in there. Hmm. In, in some ways, I'm surprised it lasted this long. I think I'm more optimistic about the English-speaking Caribbean than you are. I think it will remain intact. It's incredibly hardy. All the problems reality might throw at it, it's already been facing for centuries, which gives it a certain robustness or durability. And I'm not sure... Those lands are that valuable. Other, I mean, beach land is valuable. But I'm not sure like people in El Salvador are, will be sitting around plotting, well, if we can only take over the land in St. Martin, we can do some wonderful thing that we can't do now. <clears throat> uh, I don't think that will make economic sense for them. So I think Mexico may considerably economically colonize some current Spanish-speaking parts of the Caribbean. But the overall setup, I actually think, will be not so different from it is from how it is now. But I agree that diaspora Caribbean culture will, in relative terms, become more and more important, as it already has for Haiti, as you know, Edwidge Danticat and I uh, discussed. Yeah, I, I get that. There, there is still some endurance quality about the uh, Caribbean culture. Yeah, I, I can take that argument too. What do you expect for Cuba? That, to me, is the the huge mystery. The long-term leader of the region, but it's been massively crippled for many decades. If you can imagine Cuba getting its act together, which is not my prediction, but that could change many things in a positive way, and they would be natural leader of the region, and it's fairly populous. Yeah, it is. But I guess there's the, okay, so there's the fairy tale of Cuban liberation, which is, you know, Eventually, when America ends the embargo, Cuba is going to liberalize. It will have some free markets and it will grow very rapidly and be the center of gravity in the Caribbean. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. So people think, you know, Cuba will become another Puerto Rico 
or even a better Puerto Rico. I don't see that happening. I think the institutions in Cuba are a bit too uh, weak to have that kind of growth pattern. And I, I think a lot about Cambodia when I think about Cuba because again in Cambodia they, they don't really have any institutions per se it's only one patrimonial system where the where Hun Sen guides everything but at the same time Cambodia is growing pretty fast although a lot of that are you know 90% of that comes from the inflow of money from China not only Chinese aid but also Chinese trade as as well so there could be an argument that there could be a lot of Chinese money being invested in Cuba to help it grow. I don't mean prop up, I mean like actually grow. You kind of see some shimmers of that in this year where China launched a new white paper for helping countries develop. So I think there could be a black swan event where China really helps Cuba to build the institutions and Cuba does liberalize in a very material way. And that could happen. That's, that would not be my prediction, though. They're commodity dependent, in my view. So even if it applies to Cuba, which clearly I would favor, I don't think will do that well. And they're not doing anything where the scale they have will help them enough to get it off the ground. Obviously, an open Cuba could do much better in terms of tourism. They have incredible beaches, other amenities. But I don't know that will boost per capita income at the median so much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, should Guyana have a Paul Romer-style charter city built? There's two questions in there, at least. One is charter cities in general, and the other is about Guyana. My view of charter cities is they work best when there is a hegemon devoted to defending and developing the charter city. So Puerto Rico, the wealthiest part of the Caribbean, obviously the U.S. has been the protector. That has worked. It led to a higher standard of living. But without the involvement of the U.S. would not have been the case. Panama Canal Zone, not quite a charter city, but it has many features of a charter city. Again, the U.S. is involved. Hong Kong, Singapore, it was the British. They were like charter cities. So when it's Guyana, I just don't quite see that the U.S. wants to, would, or could take on that role. So I would think if you set up a charter city in in, in a lot of different places, not just Guyana, uh, it would either just end or it would end up being run by drug lords and you can think of as of drug lord enclaves as a kind of charter city now. They're just not good charter cities. So the preconditions of the hegemon I don't see as being there for Guyana. If they were to be anywhere, I'm not sure they are anywhere, but it would have to be somewhere much closer to the actual territory of the U.S. Now, would China play that role in Guyana? Uh, I don't feel I know much about that, but it hardly seems like an obvious thing to happen to me. So uh, when you ask, like, where in the Caribbean? Well, the British still, in a funny way, kind of play that role with Grand Cayman, right? And Grand Cayman's gone pretty well. It's tiny, but still, it's gone pretty well. Bermuda also. Uh, But the British will lose interest, and I would think over time, there'll be complete independence. So I don't really get what a charter city can accomplish that either doesn't beg the question culturally 
or rely on the outside power. Why is Haiti so poor? Is it because of the early geopolitical isolation? Is it because of Francois Duvalier? Is it because Hegel knew something we don't know? I've asked many people this question, including many Haitians. Why is Haiti so poor? Uh, I think when you look overall at the history of colonialism, it has been more bad than good. But there are many colonial regimes. Barbados, one of the better examples, where the colonial regime did help them enter the modern world in some ways. Uh, And Haiti having had a revolution and slave revolt very early, didn't have much of that. And the notion that you move from a society of largely slaves to an attempt to build a stable political equilibrium, it just seems that's very difficult. There were not any outside stabilizing forces, whether it would be colonialism or not. And if you simply stay stuck in that bad equilibrium, of not having any natural power groups where you can build up a concordance of economic, cultural, political factors that stand in some kind of equilibrium with respect to each other and get some partial stability, then I don't think you're going to develop. And that would be how I explain Haiti. And it's very striking to me today. You look at like the six richest families in Haiti, like they're mostly Lebanese, ethnic Lebanese. And that's a sign that there's, always, or at least since the, the slave rebellion, been a kind of political vacuum because you moved from a totally evil, screwed-up system to kind of no well-functioning institutions. And the revolutionaries themselves, like the St. Louverture, I mean, he was also a slave owner. What kind of slave revolt is that? Where your hero uh, ends up owning slaves. So uh, I think that once you're starting in a political vacuum and you don't have stabilizing forces... You can just stay there for a long time, and then you're losing your commodities income. So Haiti in the 1840s was in some ways, for some people, still somewhat prosperous, right? Uh, But the things they had over time, rum, molasses, sugarcane, all have gone away or been outcompeted elsewhere. And then it was never good for manufacturing. Electricity has never been a stable supply. And then there they are. What's your view? I mean, it has to come down to institutions, right? Uh, Haiti never had any, any real ones that had any credibility or robustness. And I don't know how you can fix that at this point. And also, because of this lack of institution credibility, you have people like Duvalier, you have the constant coups in, in, in Haiti that obviously go ahead to compound the ruin. So, I guess one of the, I guess, sad questions you could ask is, did freedom come too early in Haiti? I mean, very few people actually want to ask that question. So, it's, it's tricky. And I guess at this point, you know, 2020, 21, is there a way for Haiti to reverse course and actually get these credible institutions, fix the structural problems, and actually start growing? I don't know. Uh, I mean, are, do you have any examples of countries that had these really, really poor institutions and were able to reverse course? Well, some people would say Korea, Japan, but how bad their institutions were to begin with can be debated. But maybe the natural points of comparison are Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are heavily, heavily dependent on French transfers. 
Uh, they have higher living standards. A lot of that is coming from France, but they are stable because of continuing ties from France. You wouldn't call them wealthy places, uh, but maybe there's some alternate history for Haiti where they're a somewhat larger version of that, but it would cost France a lot more to do that for so many Haitians. I don't know if that's feasible. I think Curaçao is an interesting place to think about because they have an actual middle class, hardly going to call it rich, but there's a real city there. There's a real port. Uh, it's not mainly driven by tourism. You go there, you feel they've gotten something right. And it's not that all these other former Dutch colonies have done so great. Suriname, you know, uh, parts of Indonesia, you know, relative to the region, you wouldn't say they've done well. Uh, but Curaçao uh, is okay. And I don't know historically why that is, but that would be one place I would study more to get at some of these questions. And I've never been to Bonaire, another Dutch, you know, former Dutch uh, still has ties. And I believe they're also doing okay. So why those places, you know, come in way above average, I think is worth a lot more study. Yeah, there, there's no book that takes a very systematic and rigorous approach to um, Caribbean, um, to studying Caribbean institutions. We have the Dutch Caribbean, the Spanish Caribbean, the French Caribbean, the English Caribbean. And then within that, you have these, you know, really different subgroups, all having these very lush histories. And you could, if you take the Caribbean as a, a research vehicle, you can do comparative political economy, comparative politics, comparative economics, comparative law, comparative so many other things. And within that, you can learn perhaps quite a lot about how institutions actually develop in these laboratories. So it's really a shame that it is so under-theorized. I agree. It's a great shame. And a nice thing about it, so many of the countries are small enough, you feel you can wrap your, your hands around the thing. You can have gone to every place in the country multiple times. The languages are major languages for the most part. Uh, they're not far from the United States. There's typically plenty of flights. And yet the world just doesn't care enough. If Wong Kar Wai were to direct a film based in the Caribbean, what do you think would be the major theme or plot device? A tragic lost love and sadness and elegy. I think so. It would be uh, the starting point would be in the mood for love. And maybe there would be people from Hong Kong doing business in the Caribbean and it would end tragically. What have you learned about food from Surinamese cuisine? I've only had Surinamese cuisine about five times and each time it was in the Netherlands. It was spicy, it was delicious, so I assume the real thing in Suriname is quite good. Uh, and I kept on trying to seek it out, but even most parts of Amsterdam are too gentrified for you to get it. So you have to find it in parts of Amsterdam where you wouldn't normally be, or I'd eat it in Amsterdam every day, because it's better than Dutch food by quite a bit. Uh, it strikes me as highly creolized, at least the version of it you get in the Netherlands. And uh, no one has figured out how to dumb it down, which is a sign of a cuisine that's going to be tasty. And... Uh, like people, oh, they go to the Netherlands, they think I'll do Indonesian, you know, Rietstafel. And that's become a bit touristy. 
But the Suriname stuff there seems, uh, you know, like still fresh and vital yeah. and not ruined. You once wrote a throwaway comment on the Marginal Revolution blog about the album Bahamas Gumbe 1951-59. And you said it has some economic themes throughout. What were those themes that you were referring to? I don't remember. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> uh, do, can you give me any clues? I don't know. You, 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 all you did was it has economic themes throughout. Done as you know, you have your very sharp comments. I was like, what does he mean by that? <laughs> I like very much earlier acoustic guitar music from the Bahamas. The syncopations they have, the way gospel is incorporated into a lot of Bahamas music. Uh, but what I meant about that particular album. I genuinely do not know. I apologize. <laughs> so you're interviewed quite a lot, but what do you wish people ask you more about? About the Caribbean. So I'm a happy man tonight. <laughs> but not only the Caribbean, just different stuff. They think like, oh, you want to talk about your book or this or that, or, mm. oh, you want to talk about the Great Stagnation and I don't know, you do things for a number of years and you want to talk about different things. So my final question is based off of a remark by Juno Diaz. And he said that we're all in the Caribbean if you really think about it. So Tyler, in what way are you in the Caribbean? The Caribbean obviously is a bunch of small countries that are so readily buffeted by global winds, outside crises and forces beyond their control. If you grow up in the USA, you are taught that you are the opposite of that, maybe taught implicitly. But that teaching is to some extent wrong. And we see with the pandemic, we see with the financial crisis, we see with the rise of China, that you, as a member of the USA, you are not invulnerable. You are actually living in the Caribbean. So try to learn from the Caribbean because their situation is yours much more than you know. Thank you, Tyler, for this very fun conversation. I, I, I really enjoyed it. A pleasure, Rashid. And once you have it up and ready, give it to me. I'd love to put it on Marginal Revolution and tweet it. And one last thing before I go, you can follow me on Twitter at Rashid Guo, R-A-S-H-E-E-D-G-U-O. Of course, I have a link in the show notes to learn more about China-Caribbean relations. Baby